So the reading this morning is from Jeremiah chapter 23 and verse 21 to 32 on page 783 of the Bible. So Jeremiah chapter 23 and we're starting at verse 21. I did not send these prophets, yet they have run with their message. I did not speak to them, yet they have prophesied. But if they had stood in my counsel, they would have proclaimed my words to my people and would have turned them away from their evil ways and from their evil deeds. Am I only a God nearby, declares the Lord, and not a God far away? Can anyone hide in secret places so that I cannot see him, declares the Lord? Do not I fill heaven and earth, declares the Lord. I have heard that the prophets say who prophesy lies in my name. They say, I had a dream, I had a dream. How long will this continue in the hearts of these lying prophets who prophesy the delusions of their own minds? They think the dreams they tell one another will make my people forget my way, just as their fathers forgot my name through Baal worship. Let the prophet who has a dream to tell let the prophet who has a dream tell his dream but let the one who has my word speak it faithfully for what has straw to do with grain declares the lord is not my word like fire declares the lord and like a hammer that breaks a rock in pieces therefore declares the lord i am against the prophets who steal from one another words supposedly from me Yes, declares the Lord, I am against the prophets who wag their own tongues and yet declare, the Lord declares. Indeed, I am against those who prophesy false dreams, declares the Lord. They tell them and lead my people astray with their reckless lies. Yet yet I did not send or appoint them. They do not benefit these people in the least, declares the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Now, throughout history, there have always been commentators who um, analyse what is going on in public life and maybe offer predictions as to where things are heading, what the trajectories are. It may be in the realm of politics, it may be in the realm of international affairs, it may be in the realm of public morality. In Israel in the the 8th century BC and in Judah in the 7th century BC, such commentators would have been called prophets. And they were either true prophets or false prophets. True prophets are those who have an accurate take on the situation. They deliver God's narrative as to what is going on. And their predictions as to the outcomes have a track record of always being right. The false prophets, on the other hand, well, they either dream it up or they give the people what they want to hear and their analysis is incorrect and their predictions come to nothing. If we had a headline text, it would be verse 28. Let the prophet who has a dream tell his dream, but let the one who has my word speak it faithfully. Now, a text without... Um, A context can be a pretext, so we look at it in the light of the whole of the chapter. 
Now, Jeremiah, it seems, was deeply distressed by the ministry of the false prophets who opposed him. In verse 9, he talks about, My heart is broken within me. My bones tremble. Now, the situation today is both different and the same. There are plenty of false prophets around today. Jesus uh, said that there would be, right from his day until he comes again. But there is nobody around today resembling Jeremiah. There are certainly some who are gifted with prophetic insight into the meaning and application of the biblical text. But there is nobody with the inspiration or authority of the biblical prophets themselves like Jeremiah, whose prophecies about the future happened without fail. Instead, we are blessed with the written word of God. So the contrast today is between true teachers who submit to scripture and false teachers who reject or manipulate it. And here, Jeremiah, intentionally or otherwise, gives five distinctive characteristics of false teachers. And he exposes them. It's page 728, Jeremiah 23. The first characteristic is that they abuse their power. They are marked more by autocracy than by the gentleness of Christ, by really um, being heavy bullying advocates of their position rather than using persuasion and personal example. We read in verse 10, they use their power unjustly. In the autumn, we will celebrate the 500th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation. The Roman Catholic Church in the medieval period, in order to build a rather grandiose cathedral in Rome called St. Peter's, at vast expense, basically milked Western Christendom of billions. Indulgences was the racket of the day, and they fleeced both rich and poor alike. And it worked like this. When we die, we know that we die imperfectly. We're not fully sanctified, made holy, ready for heaven. We know heaven, though, is full of people who are perfectly sanctified. They are the glorified. So to fill the gap, they invented purgatory, a place where we are forcibly prepared for heaven. Now, add in the idea that the saints, that's the departed Christians, particularly the more distinguished departed Christians who are already in heaven, now add the idea that they can hear you if you try talking to them and that they can put in a good word to Jesus and God the Father, then what we have is the possibility of the purgatory process being as short as possible for our deceased loved ones. And so you set up a lucrative income stream. You would pay the church indulgences to say prayers to get your deceased loved ones through purgatory ASAP. And if you were loaded and you doubted whether your kids would spend their inheritance on your soul's repose, you would endow a private chapel with a priest to say daily masses so you would have a high-speed trip through purgatory. And that is what the medieval church imposed upon, vulnerable, uh, upon the vulnerable and the uncertain about their eternal rest. They ripped them off to feather their nest. 
or rather to build St Peter's Cathedral. And they could do so because the traditions of men at that time outranked the position of scripture. And they could do so very easily because the common people had no real access to the scriptures. It's ironic that um, the Greek of the New Testament, which is the language it was written in, is called Koine Greek, which means common Greek. It was the language of everyday business, transaction. And yet, 1,500 years later, scripture was effectively only read in Latin, and it was based on a translation in the 6th century AD. They didn't have access very easily to the Greek text and so to translate it into the languages of the day. It was in a language which, as our prayer book says, was not of the people. And so not having access and certainly not having copies, because they'd all have to be handwritten, they were in ignorance. They were dependent on whatever their priests told them. Now at the Reformation, Scripture was repositioned and it was the supreme authority under which we have the traditions of men, which is basically the collective minds of professing Christians, and human reason or even human dreams and speculations. No, Scripture became the supreme authority once again, which is obvious once, if you consider it to be the word of God, then it must have supreme authority. Now, if you can get it translated into the original, uh, from the original languages rather than from a sixth-century translation, which has uh, in Latin, which has a spin on it, into the languages of the ordinary people, and if providentially the printing press is invented at exactly the same time. Well, then, of course, you can have the scriptures in the language of all the different nations of the world and cheaply and easily reproduced so they could have access. They can read it for themselves. And as they did, they would find in vain any mention of any notion of purgatory or being able to pay off your time in it. Instead, they would discover that we are justified by faith. In other words, we are solely uh, able to look forward to eternal salvation because Jesus has paid the price through his death in our place and that gives us, he has earned access to heaven for us and for us it is a gift and they found that out. They found out that when we die, Instantly, we are glorified. There is no purgatory. Of course, our faith should be reflected in the moral and spiritual condition of our life. We should improve over life, over our lifetime. We should, our image should be restored. We should become more holy. We should become more like Jesus. After all, Jesus said, by their fruits you will know them. But our salvation is not down to us. It's all down to him. If it was down to us, we could never make it. So the relationship between scripture, reason and tradition is this. Scripture 
is the supreme authority. We use our God-given minds to understand it. God is a rational being and he has communicated to us in words and the meaning of those words are the meaning which he gave it to them when he spoke. It's, if you like, the words mean what the author intended them to mean, not what we might think they mean. And we have been recreated with rational minds and we use our God-given reason to understand the words so that we can grasp the mind of God. Now, since we, on our own, are much more likely to go astray, God has put us in a community, the church. Some of the church community have lived hundreds of years before us, and they have written down their thoughts on the scriptures and how they should be applied. Sometimes the church has made decisions as to what is the mind of Christ and what isn't. That is the traditions of men. It can be very useful or it can be grossly distorted. But by looking to the wisdom of other Christians, we are less likely to go astray. But even though we have the benefit of other Christians, we have to remind ourselves, as our Anglican prayer book does, that the church uh, is fallible and the church can and has erred, we're reminded. Only the word of God is without error in all that it affirms. If reason rules, then history shows that scripture shrinks. And as it shrinks, truth gets left out. So you end up with a kind of distorted view of God. In other words, you end up with a different God. If church tradition rules, then history shows that we get additions to scripture, which have the effect often of nullifying the supreme authority's message. And we end up, again, with a different God. In Jesus' day, the Sadducees were the former and the Pharisees were the latter. Today, in Christendom, we have revisionists who try airbrushing out bits of the Bible that they don't want to agree with. They cave in to culture and their own cravings. Today also, we have those who add to Scripture. Usually this is done by um, expecting what is, for the not yet, the life to come, expecting it to be the case now. In John Wesley's day, it was perfectionism, the belief that it's possible to be uh, sinless once you've become a Christian. But such ideas don't last very long because human nature reveals the truth. It is an impossible dream to think that you will, even though you're a Christian, even though you have Christ living within you, that you will be able to live a perfect life between now and Christ's return or your death. In the 1980s, for example, there were the Kansas City prophets who thought that they had a near-infallible hotline to heaven. They operated, certainly in style, akin to Old Testament prophets like Jeremiah, thinking that there was fresh revelation that we all needed to know. But from the day of Pentecost until the last day, there is no more that we need to know. There is no fresh revelation regarding God's grand plan. Christ ascended, he reigns on high, 
He has sent his spirit to live within his people and he will come again at the end of time. There is nothing significant in the grand plan between then and now. The canon of scripture is closed. There is no more to be added, the Apostle John writes at the end of the book of Revelation. And what's more, many of the apostles and prophets who revealed the word of God to us, like Moses and Elijah and Elisha in the Old Testament, like Peter, Paul and the other apostles in the New Testament, they had the ability to perform miracles, ones which nobody doubted were supernatural. They merely doubted as to whether it was benign or malign the source. And we're told in scripture that their ability to do that is connected with the fact that they were genuine mouthpieces from God. The miracles were to attest, to authenticate their message. And not surprisingly, their track record has never been replicated. And sadly, many of those in that Kansas City Prophets movement lived double lives and were tragically exposed. So we sit under scripture, we use our minds to interact with scripture and with each other, Christians, past and present, and we discover the mind of God, which is wonderfully illuminating if we're living in the dark, wonderfully secure if we're confused and floating around, and incredibly liberating because we discover the way we were designed to live. So that's the first point. The second is that these false prophets live a lie, a double life between their private and their public persona. 23.13 Among the prophets of Samaria I saw this repulsive thing. They prophesied by Baal and they led my people Israel astray. This is syncretism, where one religious or ideological outlook infiltrates that of another. So in the case of the fallen kingdom of Israel, whose capital had been Samaria, the religion of the Canaanites had got mixed up with the religion of Israel and corrupted it. They were deflected in their thinking and practice from following Yahweh, the Lord, who had been their god towards Baal, who was the god of the local culture. So much of the ritual and religious language would have just carried on as normal. It would have remained, but it would have meant something very different in practice, and some pretty horrific things were justified in the name of religion. And then Jeremiah turns from the events of the 8th century in the northern kingdom to those of his own day in the seventh century in the southern kingdom, verse 14. And among the prophets of Jerusalem I have seen something horrible. They commit adultery and live a lie. A friend of mine on Thursday, as he was about to go to uh, the General Synod in York, which is one of those times of the year when um, the Church of England gets in the news, not usually helpfully, and uh, he sent me an email headed, General Synod gets off to a good start, and he attached the front page of the Sun. Now, in the tradition of its defunct sister paper, the News of the World, the headline read, The Vicar of Diddly Fiddly. He turns out to be a retired Knightsbridge cleric who had nicked 3,000 from the collection plate 
and persuaded single women of a similar age, their early sixties, to lend him urgently and secretly, he said, 11,000 quid, which he then went on to spend on sex with rent boys. Looking at the Sun website, oh, this is the first copy I've ever bought of the Sun, but, um, but looking at the Sun's website, I was um, caught by another headline, Roman orgy. Vatican police broke up gay orgy in leading cardinal's apartment owned by the church's sexual abuse task force. I mean, you could not invent these things if you tried, could you really? They're a hypocrisy. They are double lives. And such double lives eventually come into collision. As Lord Brown, the former head of BP, British Petroleum, spoke of his own, own experiences on, Radio 4, on the Radio 4 Today programme, and he was interviewed on Thursday by John Humphreys. He explained how he had had um, a public life as a, a senior manager in BP and then eventually to be the um, head of it, as he had this public life in uh, a major international oil company and yet he also had a private life where he was in the habit of hiring homosexual escorts for sex. And as his profile rose, he said, so those two lives eventually collided and were made public this time by the mail on Sunday. Such double lives have existed and been exposed within a number of churches in Basingstoke over the last 30 years. Now, double lives are not confined to just fraud, theft and immorality. They can be quite legal, but they are certainly worth reflecting on. For example, some Christian charities involved with the world's poor pay their senior staff six-figure sums and spend vastly disproportionate amounts of money on public relations and advertising and certainly don't travel the world economy class. I mean, that is surely a case of double life. But perhaps they're blind to it because it's not legally wrong. Thirdly, they strengthen the hands of evildoers instead of calling them to repentance. So verse 14 and verse 22. They strengthen the hands of evildoers so that not one of them turns from their wickedness. They are like Sodom to me. The people of Jerusalem are like Gomorrah. Verse 22. But if they had stood in my counsel, that's God speaking, they would have proclaimed my words to my people and would have turned them from their evil ways and from their evil deeds. Now, however much I might prefer not to have to talk about it, but yet one can't get away from it. We all know what Solomon Gomorrah was noted for, sexual immorality in general and homosexuality in particular. Now, human sexuality is meant to be a mirror of the relationship between God and human beings. A relationship which is between the divine and the human, beings which are different. A relationship which is meant to be one-to-one, -one, monogamous and not polygamous. A relationship which is meant to be permanent because it is faithful. So, we have 
in marriage, a faithful, monogamous, heterosexual marriage, which reflects the divine human relationship, while no other human relationship does reflect that. Just as we are meant to live with God in a certain way, so we are to live with each other in a certain way. And it seems to me that if anyone claims to follow Christ, you have to follow his teaching. Now it's true, the word homosexuality isn't actually mentioned in the Gospels, but then neither is the word heterosexuality for that matter. Jesus didn't need to use such words because he endorsed the definition of marriage stated in Genesis 2.24, which in shorthand is leave your father and mother, cleave to your spouse, and that unique relationship is physically expressed in the term one flesh. That's the only context for sexual expression, a monogamous, heterosexual, faithful relationship designed to educate us regarding divine human relationships and, of course, to populate the planet, to create more people who have the potential to have an eternal relationship with God. And Christians are meant to follow, in fact, everyone is meant to follow that way of life, Christian or not, or to be celibate. And in fact, not to do so is quite serious. In fact, it's very serious. It's eternally serious. Because it, along with a number of other things, in, for example, 1 Corinthians 6, 9, where Paul says, if we kind of, as it were, practice these things, then we will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. Now, it grieves me to say that that is not the guidance that the House of Bishops give. Issued just a kind of a couple of weeks after General Synod met in February 2014, when they could have discussed it, but they didn't. They just chose to dish out some guidelines. Fortunately, you don't have to obey guidelines. In fact, I know bishops have no intention of following their own guidelines, but it does tell you well, it tells you what the Archbishop thinks, and it tells you what the majority of bishops think, sadly, because they advise that it is okay for those, for example, in a same-sex marriage to receive the sacraments of baptism and communion. Their particular way of expressing that is not to be denied access to the sacraments. And yet both sacraments require repentance and amendment of life. You read that in the Bible, you read that in the liturgies. You have to do those things before you receive them. So the guidance is actually contrary to these words of Jeremiah. Instead of calling people who commit all kinds of sins to repentance, they're singling out one thing where you don't need to repent of before you receive. And then the fourth aspect, they fill people with false hope, saying that no harm will come upon them, verses 16 and 17. This is what the Lord Almighty says, do not listen to what the prophets are prophesying to you, they fill you with false hopes. They speak visions from their own minds. 
not from the mouth of the Lord. They keep saying to those who despise me, the Lord says, you will have peace. And to all who follow the stubbornness of their hearts, they say, no harm will come to you. Derek Kidner writes, along with an easy view of sin, go rosy views of judgment. In Jeremiah's day, the false prophets said there would be no judgment if acting contrary to God's commandments. Jeremiah said otherwise. History was on his side. Today, we have two similar voices, even heard in the church. We have universalists and annihilationists. We have those who say, universalists, that it's going to be all right on the night. But on the day of judgment, everyone's going to go to heaven. Hell will be empty. Even those who don't want to go to heaven to spend eternity with God will be compelled to do so. Annihilationists believe that those who reject God will just cease to be exist, annihilated. But Jesus spoke more about the two eternal destinies than anybody else. And he said that there was a fate worse than death. And it's hard to think that simply ceasing to exist is such a fate. There wouldn't be much left in either the scriptures or the teaching of Jesus if judgment was airbrushed out. It's an awesome reality. To quote the writer of the letter to the Hebrews, in chapter 9, verse 27, it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. That is a correct and sobering perspective on which to view our life today, one which should not be airbrushed away. And lastly and fifthly, they speak visions from their own minds, not from the mouth of the Lord, verse 16. Now whether they work it out with their minds as an alternative narrative to God's, or whether they dream it up like mystics, what they come up with is the wrong explanation to life. It is in opposition to the divine narrative. What we have here is the difference between conjecture and revelation. Again on Thursday, the media were full of the rumour that maybe Wayne Rooney would be transferred from Manchester United to Everton, and Lukaku from Everton to Man United. That, on Thursday, was conjecture. None of the journalists had been in the boardrooms of the two clubs involved. They were speculating. They didn't know what had been said or not said. Only if you'd been there would you know. Similarly, Jesus Christ, who stands in the council of the Lord, he knows the plans and purposes of God. And he has revealed them through his prophets and apostles. Such is not speculation, but revelation. So what do we take away with? Well, we take away with these things. Only the word of God is effective. Jeremiah's narrative explanation on life at that particular time, you know, how God saw things, turned out to be correct. What he said about the future turned out to be right. Not only the short term, when uh, how many years it would be before the exiles returned, but also he predicted the arrival of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Then we have in verses 28 and 29 how the word of God operates. Like a hammer, it breaks the rock of stubborn human hearts. Like fire, it burns and purifies. Like wheat, it is nutritious, unlike straw. It should not be difficult, Jeremiah thinks, to choose the word of God over human dreams and to choose revelation rather than speculation. And perhaps the worldwide church's most urgent need today is for its ministers, whether they be archbishops, bishops, presbyters or deacons, the most urgent need today is for its ministers to faithfully expound and apply the word of God and to practice what they preach. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that we as professing Christians might follow in the uh, thinking and teaching of the Lord Jesus Christ, whether it's through the revelation given to his prophets in the Old Testament or the apostles in the New Testament or directly from himself when he was on earth. We pray that we might recognise his authority recorded in Scripture we might use our God-given human minds to uh, understand it. We might be humble enough to learn from other Christians who've gone before us and who live around us. And we pray that we might uh, understand it as your analysis on life on earth and that we might see your uh, future and we might embrace the great gift of eternal life if we repent of our sins and put our trust in Christ. Amen.